Hi, I'm M. And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Tariff, a podcast about transphobic ideologies, such as transclusionary radical feminism, and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. First off, sorry for being a truly heroic two months late on delivering this episode. We were off, true to our word, doing activism. In this episode, we will be giving a recap of recent events, answering some listener questions, and doing a bit of post-mortem analysis of the most recent phase of the culture war. Yeah, uh, now that we've spent uh, however many weeks it is fucking about doing other politics, we can sit back and see what we've missed and go through it all with, with you guys, with you listeners. Um, our music for this episode, uh, as ever, is by Marina Crustacean. So first off, uh, because it's been so long since we since we turned on the mics, we've got a whole slew of updates from Cult Watch, everybody's favourite section of the show. Uh, to start off, there's a general update on QAnon. So as I think we've covered before, the QAnon narrative, like the classic QAnon narrative, is increasingly in decline with the new Biden administration being in and the relative silence of Trump on social media. Plus, uh, Q themselves has not delivered a Q drop for quite some time. QAnon proper has sort of been overtaken by its children, uh, and like the anti-vax and anti-lockdown movements have become much more politically relevant for obvious reasons, particularly in the UK and the US, and a whole other range of things are also kind of in the works that have absorbed bits of the of the the great intellectual tradition of QAnonism. Uh, essentially, although the Q narrative itself about you know like the the evil paedophilia cabal is now slightly less filled with momentum the model that it operates under has strengthened quite a lot. And there's now a whole bunch of like spin-offs, essentially. Um, one particularly notable one uh, in relation to anti-lockdown things in the UK is a thing called the White Rose Movement. Um, rather perversely, that's named after um, a historical thing, which was the, the, the White Rose Organization, which was a pacifist anti-Nazi students group who you know, included the famous Sophie Scholl, they were executed by the Nazis for handing out pacifist and anti-war literature during the height of World War II, uh, which is a bit ironic given that White Rose in the UK has been tied by several anti-fascist organisations to known hard-right organisers. White Rose itself uh, is essentially a a grassroots sticker distribution programme, You'll see their stickers on lampposts all over the place with like nonsensical slogans, really strange formatting, uh, and kind of like little diatribes of of written material about how like lockdowns are a hoax and it's all the government trying to screw you over and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, they're typically printed on cheap sticker paper, but it's an interesting development of upon QAnon type mentality because it borrows conspiracy theory thinking and combines it with like other stuff from like the hard right playbook such as the like the the distributed grassroots sticker distro distro tactic which was a favorite of the also uk-based hundred handers neo-nazi group it's also linked to telegram chats right um which is another far right uh tactic oh yeah so obviously like the, the the left loves loves twitter and tumblr and the far right loves facebook and telegram um, and Telegram chats are, are where White Rose is kind of based, and indeed is where a lot of QAnon stuff happens as well. But it's, it's it, a lot of this is interestingly due to like the dynamics that happen on certain platforms, which is why you can very much tell when like a 4chan thing is a 4chan thing, for example. 
Yeah, speaking of um, Telegram, uh, Fash, and 4chan, uh, another another fun update is you may have seen stuff about Super Straight, which was like M says, like very clearly an op uh, that went big time. Um, linked to like Tommy Robinson, uh, 4chan stuff, um, and like one of the reasons that it like is very clearly an opposite was like pushed cross platform and like immediately went into loads of different online reactionary subcultures so like tommy robinson's post about being super straight was him congratulating milo yanopoulos on becoming an ex-gay which of course is, is is linked to evangelical stuff the meme was also recently promoted in the u.s by a woman called Kara Dansky, who's a regular guest of Tucker Carlson, which is a very far-right show. Um, but she's also like a joint member of a bunch of uh, turf orgs in the US uh, or internationally, such as WHRC, WOLF, and DGR. Um, so like in the US, WHRC's links to the right are like way clearer, but they are an international organization and they have a UK presence, uh, which their UK presence is linked to extremely anti-Semitic uh, Scottish conspiracies about Timmy, um, which is something that Tom Robinson also drew on uh, in his post where he said, people who <clears throat> indoctrinate young kids to be gay or trans are degenerate scumbags. So like it very quickly took off, even though it originated um, as like a meme war thing. Um, I think the original post was a 16 year old on TikTok. It's a lot of it has been on like Facebook and Telegram. Uh, visuals have been combined with like black and orange flags and like other viral like image artifacts. And um, also like right wing meme more stuff has like multiple memings, uh, me- memings, <laughs> meanings. Um, so the SS in joke, obviously the uh, black and orange flag thing. Um, like four chani poll memesters absolutely love flags. Um, and it's an example, apparently, of something called the Kaiser wrench. Kaiserite. Ki- Kaiserite exa- mentality. I should say that's not like a documented <laughs> thing. Uh, no, I, this is just this is just in reference, like a little like reference I put down in the notes because like the flag thing and the fact that they've made like a fake political flag with an obscure Nazi joke in reference yeah. to their completely invented political movement. It reminds uh, me of the of the fan base community for a game called Hearts of Iron Four, which is filled with nazis who keep like producing like mods for this strategy game where you get to like like play as like fictionalized versions of nazi germany and they love to like invent like like insane new stuff for it where there's like a new ridiculous like fascist nation like nuclear powered fascist ukraine in the year 1939 all this kind of crap and it just reminds me of that and one of the one of the popular mods is called kaiserreich um Although I think well, that, that one that one is actually one of the less Nazi-ish ones, despite the name. That um that really like the the meme more kind of like fash lot, they also like love things like flags and vexology, like a lot of Yes, the exactly. It's about, it's about, this and... is not like this is like like uh the the the, the vexillology subreddit, except like the yes. dark side of it, basically. It's like all of the weirdos who don't go there because they love flags, but do go there because they love flags with a capital F essentially uh the 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 fact that there was this visual component to the super straight meme and the fact that there was clearly this like ss joke in there was just like instantly rang an alarm bell there being like okay this was dreamed up by a bunch of creeps on discord it is so obvious 
it's also it's not just obvious because it's like very clearly an op but also like there was the literal convergence between like kiwi farms users and fucking mums net users so it's like that was ages ago by this point there is clearly like at discords or telegrams or whatever of people pumping out shit like this all the time yeah which, also, um, i, I want to just look back to tucker carlson because it's it's kind of timely that we mentioned tucker carlson we forgot to put this in the notes but he was recently uh outed as being part of like a hardline hardline anti-gay group in his in his teens and early adulthood when somebody got hold of his high school yearbook oh yeah um complete complete like divergence from the from the show notes here but i thought that'd be worth mentioning especially in the context of him having people like karadansky on the show and karadansky being involved in pushing super straight didn't didn't he in his yearbook quote the terrorist who um killed harvey milk yeah yeah yes um that was it so again a link to soliciting uh um physical violence against the what tommy robinson calls degenerate scumbags which is very fun i also think it's quite heartwarming that like tucker carlson is hearkening back to his days as like a hot his like early days as like a young horrible rabble rouser to assist the newest generation of like youth bash it's very sweet really it's quite it's quite it's quite cute yeah it's kind of like you failed the last time hopefully you will fail again and forever um although we shall have to see indeed we're doing our best Hey everybody, M here in the editing room. So we actually recorded this slightly before the local elections, but we've been so lazy about editing the episode that this is probably going to be released about two weeks after they've happened. So the next little bit is about the local elections and it just it just contains a couple of general comments on it. Um, now, the outcome of the local elections is actually pretty bad for a, a variety of trans-exclusionary politicians, uh, particularly north of the border in Scotland. Um, it's also worth noting that like the crank candidates in, in the London mayoral election also had like a bit of a mixed run. Uh, so please bear that in mind as you listen to this next segment. Oh yeah, what's next? Uh, let's move on to something that's a bit more a bit more down to earth. Uh, there's local elections in the UK, and it's completely fucking stuffed with like loads and loads of tiny political parties. Quite a lot of them are quite weird. Um, London mayoral election has like forty fucking candidates, it's, including it's not... Piers Corbyn. Oh god, Piers Corbyn. Right. Yes. So so Piers Corbyn, brother of Jeremy, uh, much less much less uh, well beloved. Beloved. Um, one of the leading, if you can call it that, uh, anti-lockdown, anti-vax, COVID denial, 5G conspiracy theory type guys. But he's not the only one. There's a whole pile of them. And there's also other stuff going on with the local, with the local elections. Like transphobic dog whistles are now like a, a component of like the platforms of quite a lot of the small parties. Um, like there's, there's kind of like the old school far right people. Like, uh, I found a leaflet from, what was it? The Scottish Christian Party? Scottish Family Values Party? I've got it here, actually. Hold on. Um, yeah, here we go. In his, in his private time, loves to collect this stuff. Yes, I do. I actually collect cult leaflets and get like friends and members of the family to, to mail them over to me. We're uh, very normal podcast hosts. So yeah, here we go. Vote Scottish Family Party. There's a void in Scottish politics and we're here to fill it. Uh, and it says, it's like their, their first three items on the front page of the leaflet are 
Uh, we value families as the building boxes of, of a strong nation offering financial assistance. We respect life, opposing both abortion on demand and assisted suicide, uh, a thing that is not happening in the UK. And we protect children from vulgar and corrupting sex education. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't legalised assisted suicide, have we? I'm sure I wouldn't have missed that. Oh, the right are trying to do it because they didn't kill enough people uh, via COVID neglect, but it hasn't happened yet, no. <sighs> anyway, so there's that. Uh, there's also Alba. Um, and there's, God, there's loads of, there's just loads of cranks this year. There's the Heritage Party. We've mentioned them before. Just anyway, it's happening in two days. So we're going to see all of these guys lose their deposits, which does not matter to them because they're not trying to get elected. They're using the election as a PR platform in order to push their narrative into people's minds. Uh, Uh, Before we go go into um, Alba, um, it's worth also noting that this isn't just confined to like small parties. Uh, Jess Phillips recently, who is the shadow minister for domestic violence and safeguarding in the Uh. Labour Party, um basically bloody safeguarding yeah again um so essentially she helped um fan the flames of an anti-trans conspiracy theory because um uh unfortunately a woman was recently murdered and the news broke um i think a few days ago early may or um uh sorry not early may february um and basically the reports made mum's net go absolutely rabid because they were convinced that the killer might be trans based on like some grammatical errors in some of the reports. Um, So in February, Jess Phillips tweeted repeating the claim that the killer was um, a trans woman. Um, She's deleted it, but like not, not apologize. And of course she isn't going to because she's part of a party where Rosie Duffield gets to do whatever the fuck she wants. Anyway, um, basically, uh, you know, Mumsnet went rabid. They wanted to do their like transvestigation thing. But Jess Phillips specifically like mentioned the case in terms of context of discussing single, like sex, sex segregated shelters, despite the fact that neither the killer nor the victim were housed in a refuge. Um, it was an HMO, which is, you know, a flat. Um, and like, she just shared this false information specifically in an anti-trans way for no reason again linking it to safeguarding and stuff like that so it's just it's just everywhere folks and it's not even as if that was particularly much of a vote winner for her she just does it no no she's become fully radicalized like like jess phillips is individually anti-trans radicalized that much is very clear Mm, mm, definitely so Scotland is having its own share of anti-trans uh, troubles um, and appears to have gone completely off the deep end in a couple of ways. So small note, the Scottish NHS, one of their bodies, recently employed an anti-trans activist as a non-executive director. So it's not just the English NHS that hates trans people. Don't worry. But uh, in regards to conspiracy specifically, Trans Safety Network, which are an amazing site doing some brilliant investigative journalism, uh, who I highly encourage you to check out, recently shared um, a whole expose um, on a on trans anti-trans conspiracy theories um because they came up at the alba party's women's conference um so they went to ham for gender critical stuff and eventually ended up having their twitter account suspended and then alex salmon like denying 
that there had been like an Alba Women's Conference where they pushed conspiracy theory, alleging that the world's largest LGBT rights campaign organization was promoting pedophilia, which, of course, is like a classic for the turfs because they love to talk about protecting our, our Timmy. Um, this goes quite deep in Scottish like politics, it seems, according to the Trans Safety Network article, and is really worth keeping an eye out. But for the moment, like Albert is confined to being a party led by a sex pest, and hopefully will also be losing their deposits very shortly. Yeah, so like the the the, the position of Albert in the Scottish local in the Scottish regional election is very very funny to me as someone who can still vote in Scotland, because what's happening in the Scottish opinion polls is that there's like a slight shrink in approval for the SNP. And then quite a lot of those votes are going to the Greens or they're going to the Scottish Tories. Because, like, basically, there's, there's a, since Alex Salmond, like, self-destructed over being outed as a massive rapist it's and then kind of kicked off, like, accusing the SNP of being corrupt in their attempt to kick him out for being a massive, rapi- being a massive rapist, um, there's been, like, a, a drop-off in support for independence, which is therefore kind of led on led on to a drop off in support for the SNP in terms of voting intention. However, because the SNP has also had all of these problems with the, their like political um, messaging going completely haywire and their, their progressive credentials getting dragged through the mud through all, because of all of the transphobes they've got on board, quite a lot of their progressive voters are now switching over to the Greens, which means that the actual beneficiaries... <laughs> Of, of other parties' fucking efforts are, are like their political enemies, both in terms of people who are opposed to independence, i.e., the Tories and the Labour Party, and also their political opponents within the pro independence movement because they pissed off people so much that they're no longer willing to vote for either Alba or the SNP and are going for the Greens, who will never work alongside Alba. So I, I think it's personally actually quite funny, and I'm hoping that as long as we can pull through and not have someone from Alba somehow win a list MSP slot, then we're going to do just fucking fine. Um, and they'll continue to be a massive pest, but, but, but they'll lose their comparative legislative clout. It really reminds me of UKIP in the sense that, you know, UKIP was single issue and um, very far right. And I guess the difference between the two, because obviously UKIP no longer exists because it entirely accomplished its aims, which were like mainstreaming, far-right shit and xenophobia and stuff like that i guess it's down to how culpable the scottish media want to be in that sort of stuff really whether albert goes the way of cuck or the way of ukip just to clarify uh e is referring to change uk which is a immediately defuncted um liberal split from the party well, I feel like these things should just be clarified, given the given the great prevalence of discussion of cuckoldry when people are talking about fascism. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's just funny uh, that that cuck got cucked. <clears throat> Let's move on. Let's move on. We've we've talked about this enough. Um... Hey, M here again. Yeah, so it turns out that actually exactly this happened. Um, the Scottish Greens gained several MSPs. Alba went absolutely nowhere. There was a slight drop in SNP um, numbers. And interestingly enough, Joan McAlpine, who was one of the most powerful and influential kind of anti-trans politicians in Scotland, 
basically just got completely yeeted out of the out of the political thunderdome. Anyway, back to the episode. Uh, in further in further kind of like British political news, we've had a pile of protests recently, and these these fall into two broad categories. One of them is like this, the general spate of anti-lockdown rallies, which I like alluded to earlier with relation to White Rose and and the the dissipation and realignment of the QAnon movement in Britain. That quite a lot of this stuff is oriented around anti-lockdown politics. And there's been several, there've been several uh, anti-lockdown rallies in between uh, our recording today and our last episode being released. Um, now, uh, several of these, we've noticed uh, some familiar faces from the transphobic political movement in in Britain, um, and this is not this has not completely escaped the attention of other anti-fascists who are who are thankfully also keeping an eye on them. So that's good. Um, but interestingly, there's also been some known turf presence at the Kill the Bill protests. So to explain what this is for our listeners who aren't based in the UK, um, the British government is currently trying to push through a law called the the Police Crime Courts and Sentencing Bill, I think is the full name. Mm. Um, and it's essentially a massive expansion of police and judicial powers, particularly in relation to public order stuff. So protests. Uh, which now and it now basically means that quite a lot of protests will be de facto illegalized at the discretion of the police who are there on the day and that creating a public nuisance in the context of a protest can now come with a jail sentence and the definition of being a public nuisance is extremely broad so this is generally seen as being a massive expansion of the power of the state and Everybody across the like the, the the left is really pissed off about it, uh, and there's been lots of protests. And we have noticed at a couple of these protests that there have been um, a few of the the like the veteran turfs because there's quite a lot of just generalized transphobic presence within the British left. We've certainly seen a couple of uh, organizations present that we know are extremely transphobic, like the Workers' Party of Britain, who were at the May Day protest, various other like small Marxist or communist groups who, are, who fall into the the general category of the of the the turfy milieu that we we described when we did our episode on on like UK leftism, um, so there's that we also noticed some specific individuals who we know are linked to uh, Venice Allen and uh, Percy Parker. A couple of people who are involved in like the Manchester political scene came down to London. Um, all of that kind of general fun stuff, and then um, the other thing about the Kill the Bill protests is that one of the most prominent groups organizing for them is a very good organization called Sisters Uncut, who are a, a trans-inclusive feminist group. Um, they're generally considered to be like one of like the gold standards of like protest organizing in the UK right now because they've done a real good job of like flying the flag for the whole thing. Um, and they became prominent because they held a vigil for a woman called Sarah Everard, and we'll, we'll talk about this stuff later in the episode because it's relevant to general UK activism. But the this woman, Sarah Everard, was killed by an off-duty police officer. And in response to this, there was a generalised political outcry. One of the other groups that attempted to become prominent in the initial phase of this outcry was a group called Reclaim the Streets, I believe. If that... Yeah, who were also linked to Jess Phillips, if I remember correctly. Yes. So these these people appeared basically out of nowhere with like a mass- well, they appeared out of the uh, the the right wing of the labor corridors. 
Yes, pretty much, with like a massive fundraiser with support from MPs. And shockingly, the public social media pages are just like crawling with like turf commentators, which might might indicate which wing of the movement that comes from. So there's there's a bit of an interesting kind of unspoken split going on within uh, British feminism at the moment, which I think will be interesting to see develop. It's also interesting in the sense of like, you're seeing this split along kind of several lines because the a lot of the kill the bill protests are incorporating elements from the previous year of British BLM protests um, and also uh, general anti-racist causes because the bill not only increases police power, but also co- uh, creates the legislative leeway for the Tories to enact the um, and I, I'm not uh, being hyperbolic here. The, the genocide of the GRT community, which they proposed in their 2019 manifesto. So on the one side of the left, you've got people who are associating the state with uh, racism and authoritarianism and groups like, as I'm said, Sisters Uncut are a anti-racist, trans-inclusive organization. And on the other side, you've got leftist and li- so-called leftist commentators decrying protesters for getting in the way of police batons um, being associated with transphobia and um, and racism themselves, um, I think it's also the commenters are the ones associated with the racism and transphobia. To be, to yes. be entirely clear, um, I think th- I think it's also worth noting. This is a- actually no, ignore me. Oh, one thing, one thing, just to clarify, because not everybody will be familiar with this acronym. Uh, GRT refers to Gypsy Roma and Traveler, which is uh, kind of like a it's the, it's like a, a couple of ethnicities or ethnic communities. Uh, within the the uk uh, but i suppose like our us listeners would not be familiar with that or indeed any of our other listeners around the planet i know we've got a fair few from europe um well uh, european listeners will be well they'll they'll be familiar with the concept but not the acronym yes of course um yeah the uh the romani communities um in europe are a lot uh, larger and the traveler communities are uh, in in the UK are a lot larger. America doesn't really have experience with either. I guess apart from in relation to the history of um, European fascism, unfortunately, uh, because of course um, in uh, under Nazism, uh, GRT people were also one of the first to be targeted, which is uh, a parallel to be drawn with the British state. Yeah, and in in Britain, just generalized anti GRT politics is. Completely, Very completely endemic, completely normalized, uh, normalized to a, an absurd degree when you begin to realize what's going on. Um, anyway, speaking of the normalization of political violence, we've got some arson to talk about. Yeah, so a arsonist in Sheffield um, attempted uh, to harm a trans woman by um, petrol bombing, if I remember correctly, her post box and then her house or maybe her house through the 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 mail slot um but this extremist uh it came out has shared content from posey parker now parker also recently called for men who carry guns to enter women's toilets and target women they think are trans on her youtube which is like very clear uh violence incitement um this is notable because Another piece of stochastic violence a few months ago in Canada, uh, uh, an instance of uh, GBH or physical assault, was carried out by a guy wearing an I heart JK, JK Rowling, 
t-shirt who was um related to those canadian billboards if i remember correctly and those were like a huge deal especially in canada's history of like um anti-trans bigot activism so it, i think it's safe to say that the the probes if not the mainstreaming of enabling political violence are already out they're just missing the kind of like real capacity um in general uh, i think it's also like worth noting as as mentioned earlier in regards to the split on the left and kind of the political allegiances of the general anti-trans reactionary tendency um like in the uk uh, a neo-nazi violently murdered a left-wing mp joe cox um several years ago um and this of course was not really covered to any great extent by the media and was largely forgotten about um an accolade named after her was uh, created within the Labour Party. Um, and some of uh, the names that you will know from this podcast, like Venice Allen, um, we know because she and other anti-trans people in the Labour Party at the time went absolutely rabid about this shortlist uh, accolade thing because a young trans woman was nominated. Um, and the fact that, you know, one of Venice's mates inspired another fascist man um, to attempt another attack on a woman, I think really neatly illustrates these people's relationships to both violence against women and their views on fascism, um, especially in relation to the lockdown protests and all of these like emergent um, categories and, and, and tendencies, I guess. In America, groups like Proctica and LGB Fightback, who we previously mentioned, have already started harassing um, people at clinic protests and at feminist events. But there has not as yet been the same level of stochastic violence, fortunately. Yeah, so that's that's the cult watch update. As you can see, it's a bit of a long one um, because a lot of stuff has happened. Uh, two months. And, yeah, two months. Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> Good thing we aren't running a Patreon, really. <laughs> Have to give refunds. God, no, we actually would. <laughs> bankrupted by starting a patreon to try and get some sweet clout dollars we'd have to do it we'd have to do it oh my god we would have to do it in the same way as noted trans ally h bomber guy which is that he doesn't do it by like regular donations he has it set up so that you only give him money when he releases an ep- when he releases a, a, a video which only happens like every six months genius dear me dear me Okay, so yeah, basically, the purpose of this episode is that we're we're giving like a generalized recap and post mortem. And given given all of the stuff that we've just listed for Cult Watch alone, um, there's quite a lot of stuff to recap. But the the general the general thrust of things is that like since the kind of tipping point of trans visibility in like I guess 2015, kind of like the end of the Obama era, uh, the, around about the the time when Brexit was like just about to start to be a thing. This has kind of led to uh, led to a, a, a normalization of reactionary politics that has gone alongside the generalized normalization of reactionary politics, and particularly with relation to trans stuff, it really kicked into gear last year because there was a massive kind of increase in mobilization uh, and a big escalation of generalized transphobic stuff because, like, it had been building for a while, and then a bunch of different political things snapped. Uh, like the progressive movement in the UK kind of got shattered. Um, the US went through its general election cycle. 
it was fucking lockdown, everybody went insane, and all the slow burn stuff suddenly became quick burn. Um like I like the imagery that the imagery that E has put in the notes here is quite is quite interesting. Um where it's like picture one of those fountains with buckets that fills up with drips over time and then periodically dumps the collective water below. The water is like the capacity for for, for political violence, currently mostly enacted by the state, with splashes of, of stochastic violence almost as a side effect. The less stable the flow, the more the violence becomes literal and interpersonal. Hard hitting stuff, E. Good stuff there. <laughs> they call me a writer they don't they call me someone with adhd um that would explain why there's no punctuation <laughs> yeah especially like in the in the uk as well like it went from the, the way i think of it is like it built from a few years ago we would say like oh this stuff is never ending but the this stuff referred to terrible shit in the media which made us feel bad Whereas now this stuff is every day the government is announcing something more and more actually hostile to trans people that has a real effect on our lives. Um, and, and yeah, it's like it's far more uh, violent um, rather than generally harmful, I suppose you, you could say. Um, the US has absolutely just kind of ramped up even further. So in, 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 in the last few weeks between the last episode, the U.S. proposed, like, God knows, I think it was over 100 anti-trans bills in the majority of U.S. states. It was clearly some kind of big, big strategy guru conference in, in Republican Party headquarters. And they were like, right, well, we've been listening to Blood and Turf podcasts. We better do what these <laughs> conferences say. <laughs> yeah, it was our fault. I'm really sorry. Um, I think it's notable specifically in terms of it being our fault. All of the predictions we made in our last episode, like the way in which they have been wrong is that we were too optimistic. Essentially. Yeah, it's like they, they all basically came to fruition within a week of us hitting the post episode button on Podbean. Yeah. Which is um, not, not really where you want to be for an anti-fascist podcast. No, and especially because like, me and Em and I joke um, a lot of the time when we're recording that like we are predicting stuff, but only like a few seconds ahead of time. And the fact that we made these grand sweeping predictions and like our future vision or whatever you want to call it uh, only lasted like a day or so is quite concerning, I would say. Yeah, because um, there's, there's two implications. One of the implications is that we're like quite stupid and short termist in terms of how we do our political analysis, which is entirely possible because God knows we weren't the only ones to predict this stuff. So maybe maybe we, we, we just weren't thinking big enough. And the other one is just that the enemy is way, way faster than we thought they were. It's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, not to toot our own horns, but I, I think that although we absolutely can be wrong, it probably is more the latter, just in the terms of I have really noticed many other people doing really great work similar to ours, such as, for example, Health Liberation Now and Trans Safety Network. Um, they're amazing organizations, but they didn't exist, you know, four or so years ago, unless I'm unless I'm completely wrong. I or I wasn't aware of them doing as much then anyway so i think it, it, it's more that we're being outpaced generally i think it very much reminds me of the early period of the trump administration but i think we mentioned that in the previous episode so yeah yeah anyway yeah not 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 brilliant stuff but yeah the thing that the thing that actually um kind of i've been thinking of more and more is uh 
because we've now completely moved out of the the realm of the the Trump administration, and as as we talked about in the last episode, we're in we're in kind of like a new political phase that requires new political mobilization. It's it's important to like look at what's going on that's different now. Um, and again, one thing that we've covered over several episodes is the is the kind of generalized uselessness of the Democrats and the Labour Party, and like Biden and Starmer are really notable because they're just such like complete shadow people they're just utter nothing guys where they're not doing any kind of reforms whatsoever like you know with, with starmer he's not politically empowered to do a goddamn thing um but it's very clear that he doesn't even want to um whereas with biden yeah with biden like we've just exited the the period during which a new president is notionally meant to be at, at his like height of political power but most of the big like milestone policies of the Trump administration didn't change, um, which will not be that surprising to most of our listeners because we're all kind of like crazy lefty anti-fascists and we're fully expecting things to stay just as terrible because America's terrible. But it is worth noting because it just betrays like this complete political lethargy, which is just very, I just feel like it's very indicative of how things are going to go in general. Um, and then you've got like Starmer and now the Tories have a 20 point lead, which is bananas. You shouldn't be able to do that with a by-election, especially not with the, the government embroiled in this many crises. So there's this, there's this just general air of like a complete lack of political momentum that is pervading both, both the, the Starmer and Biden um, political projects, I guess. Although they're both very, very difficult, like very, very different animals because the Biden like the Biden administration is actually a thing and it's much more energetic. It's just, it's energetic in a, in like a, it's energetic in it's in that it's not doing things deliberately. Whereas like Starmer is not doing things by default. It really reminds me like, so it's not just that Biden has had his first hundred days, but it's also the fact that because of, you know, orange man bad, he rode in on a massive mandate. Um, You know, lefties will remember all of the kind of like, again, so-called lefty commentators yelling at people that they had to vote Biden and they had to vote Trump out. And he was elected based on no personal attribute, but people's united kind of like hatred for Trump. And similarly, uh, Keith, like regardless of his personal attributes, gets to be in opposition to a government who are being very much damned uh, on the international stage generally, and also in regards to their their COVID handling. You know, there, there, there are articles and, you know, news coming out every day about how there's more proof of Tory corruption in regards to COVID PPE contracts and rules and guidelines and health and safety and stuff like that. And so they both, by having absolutely no excuse to do nothing, have really shown like the death of liberalism. I think like, was it, I think Zizek said this about Trump. He was like, Trump's face is like the last thing a liberal sees. Um, I think, you know, with the implication either being ego death and getting on with not being a liberal anymore or, or just cognitive dissonance. And yeah, lefty anarcho kind of like um, kids like us are going to be like, yes, of course, you know, the British state and the American state are bad. But it's almost like the mask is very, very much off at this point. And people are not even really bothering to keep up with the lie that electoral politics has to be the way it does because it seems almost that it's no longer necessary. 
the reason why I think this is important for for like um like trans politics is a uh, there's the obvious impact it will have on generalized reactionary politics, particularly to do with the the legislative reforms that are being pushed by the by the Johnson um, cabinet at the minute in the UK, with like the the expanded police powers law that we mentioned earlier, the spy cops law, which is already passed, which Starmer actively backed. Um, oh, he loves cops. Yeah, so like it, it's like it's like the the reaction to insurrection is is a cop loving reformist essentially speaking of insurrection i think it's really notable with all of these convergences around especially the american evangelical right and um qanon and conspiracies and obviously the capital riots um that like a lot of the neocon hardline religious right agitators over the past few decades have been linked to dominionism which specifically is a relatively apocalyptic strand of uh, fundamentalist Christianity and dominionists specifically like want insurrection in the level that like they want like the kind of fundamentalist Christianity version of what the right think Sharia law is. They want uh, to be able to control their own communities and people make jokes about uh, America becoming balkanized, but there is definitely a undercurrent at the moment of um, the electoral circus you know the 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 gilded paint kind of flaking off in favor of the people standing with the with the clubs and trebuchets at the side if that makes sense yeah it does i mean i think i think like the place i was going with this um to kind of tie it back to the 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 core message of the podcast in general there's like a cleavage between legislative politics and street politics that we've mentioned several times on the podcast and like with the UK, reactionary politics is currently very much in like a legislative phase, because it, whereas in the US, um, they don't have like a full kind of crypto fash government. They've just got this kind of like consolidatory conservatism under Biden. So instead, they're gonna, like, I think the reactionary side of things is either going to go through like local political legislative efforts, like we're seeing with the various different anti-trans bills, or it's going to go through like some kind of big recalibration of how they do street violence, which is going to be interesting. Or, well, obviously we both at the same time, what I mean is that at the, at the national level, um, like reactionary legislation with the exception of when it has something to do with the police and BLM stuff is probably not going to be exactly at the vanguard of anti-trans stuff. Whereas it's very much going to be on the local level and the local level stuff will be tied in with some kind of, rejigging of how they do of how they do street violence post-trump whereas over here uh the the big cleavage between uh legislative and street stuff is actually happening on the left because like the legislative side of the of the kind of like the center left is completely evaporated and there's not really any kind of progressive response to any of the sarah everard kill the bill stuff there's not been any serious coherent attempt at like pushing a defunding message from any components of the labor party it's just like solid kind of like baseline pro-cop stuff and accordingly there's very little built-in capacity for them to absorb that movement which means that the ball is now slightly more in the court of street activists like sisters uncut the anti-fascist movement some elements of of, of, uh, like the workers movement and so on and so forth yeah, I think it's worth noting that the Labour Party were originally whipped to, um, I think, abstain, if I remember correctly, on the crime and policing bill. And it was only after um, grassroots um, offline and online outcry from 
non kind of uh, center legislative electorally inclined people that they changed their whip to be um to to oppose and every single uh left party i think it might have just been every party i i may, I may be wrong though apart from the conservatives um did oppose the bill of course it it, it passed that stage because the conservatives have a massive majority i think bring it back to the us and police violence before we move on to our next point in regards to the national level um where it comes to like you said these two strands of street violence and local politics i think it's worth noting that in the wake of the trial of Derek Chauvin, Biden did intervene by specifically seeking to neuter left-wing um, street protest uh, by giving a address to the nation, urging people to remain calm, which is very end-of-day stuff. And I watched some of the coverage of it, um, I think mostly CBC or NBC, which had a lot of lawyers on. So again, very legislative focused, et cetera. And they were all talking about the criticism that Biden was under for this break and departure and, and, you know, urging people to remain calm. And the fact that he did that clearly, I guess, shows how much the establishment do fear that that wing from the left, at the least, although they clearly are absolutely fine with it from the right considering the there's also of... there's also an aspect to biden's like self-realized ideological position which is that he very much sees himself as being like the candidate who or rather the president who will restore uh like a shattered unity and like being yes. the guy who appeals to calm is very much something that, that would appeal to him and would appeal to his advisors so there's that aspect of it too there's like there's certainly there's like a proactive uh political world building side of it rather than just being okay we've got to stop these people rioting on this one specific instance that there is also like a project in there well the project of returning to normality is something that keith is also trying to do because he for some reason keeps trying to appeal to the now lost um massive swathe of british constituencies commonly called the red wall in the north really fucking fictional concepts yeah, I mean, the Labour heartlands have been for many years London. Um, yes, and... London, it's London, Manchester and Liverpool. Yeah, which uh, who Keir who fucking hates. Like he didn't he he's, he's 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 let the Tories interfere in local politics in Liverpool. He has got into a fight with um, Burnham in Manchester and he's very much peddling this like anti-london metropolitan kind of stuff just like the right do so they're both yeah this, they're is, both, the, like, this, nothing this is an interesting thing about like labor politics which is that um in many ways like the the leadership that like the core leadership of the labor party is like at war with its constituency in general which i think also speaks to a lot of where this like transphobic stuff comes from because there's almost like a desire like they want to be successful and they associate being successful with being conservative because they they're used to losing so much so they're pissed off that they they they're stopped from being conservative by all of their fucking supporters who will only vote for them if they're not conservative and it results in this like very freudian resentment of the electorate that keep voting them in yeah, Democrats have a, a, the really similar thing. Um, if I remember correctly, one of the organizers who is most instrumental in voter signups in the last American um, election was a black woman. And there has been like loads of there were loads of spats with basically Americans showing absolute spite towards their strongest electorate. Um, and I think the voter demographics did shift accordingly. So, yeah, it's like two nothing men who want to return to liberal democracy normalcy and it's like being shown for like an utter utter sham 
um, kind of at the same time, but in varying ways because of the varying political climates, even though both political climates are shit. So yeah, in this in this general context, uh, like mainstream politicians are just generally in a, in a bit of a bind with relation to kind of like dampening down um, like the fervor in the streets by like UK leftists because the like the legislative side of things just hasn't got any any road to go down um, like because there's nobody who's uh, there's nobody who's both willing and capable of pushing any kind of message that will absorb all that energy and accordingly that kind of I think that kind of leaves um, like pro-trans anti-fascism and like LGBT like properly like militant LGBT politics in a really interesting place because the, all of these like recent developments in UK politics have had various like the, you know UK politics is in a bad way but there have been some positive side effects to this stuff um, particularly with relation to like direct action and street militancy uh, like the, I feel like these sisters on cut actions would have been either less spiky slash kind of like more quote unquote normal uh, prior to 2020, prior to the big BLM demos, prior to prior to COVID-19 kind of completely changing the political landscape. And there also wouldn't have been all of this kind of new uh, political activist infrastructure, which has very much exploded in the UK over the last year or two. I wouldn't say that Sisters Uncut are necessarily were necessarily like less militant or, or radical. You know, that, that's, that's, but... that, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like because the context in which they've been operating would have been different. Yeah, they would have, they would have acted differently. Like Sisters Uncut have a very solid reputant, reputation for militancy, and it's well earned. And it was yeah, it was it was known before this if you were in the in the activist scene. But I more mean like even the actions themselves wouldn't necessarily have had to be more. Um uh normie it's just that the now there is scale essentially which um there wasn't previously right yeah that, that yeah that, that's a better way of, way of framing it there's also the like the cop side of things which is that my feeling as someone who who's done a lot of uh street actions of various different like levels of spikiness is that the police particularly in england are getting a little bit more gloves off. And I think that that has had an effect on the, like that is clearly having an effect on generalized organizing models, particularly in the context of Kill the Bill stuff. So that there is also that outside factor. Yeah, uh, in America, obviously, there were many, many BLM-related street protests where police would impose a curfew and illegalize a protest, uh, often with no notice or uh, after they had already, you know, or retroactively. And that is kind of what happened with the Sarah Everard vigil in that the police suddenly decided that the that the vigil was no longer lawful, waded in, beat a bunch of people up, and since then have sort of decided to, you know, go hard or go home, um, seemingly. Particularly for the earlier protests, like um, with the May Day protest that just happened a couple of days before recording this, I feel like the police were a lot more chilled out. Um, but with the protests that immediately followed on from the vigil which made you know front front page news that they were they were very heavy-handed like they were very very antsy about the whole thing but yeah but basically i feel i feel like in the wake of the black lives matter protests there was this big explosion of people doing protest organizing and that meant there were a lot more people who were doing things like being legal observers 
or getting activist groups they were already in to kind of like join up in these big big tent causes and now there's like been two or three big tent political protest movements in the uk over the last couple of years that were met with or are being met with heavy police responses that are now kind of just drawing in all sorts of organizations from across the across the the generalized lefty scene and that's that does seem to be having some kind of cultural effect yeah as the cleaving with the labor party has happened um because a, a lot of people who are now disavowing the labor party would have been drawn in by momentum under corbyn as this cleaving is happening you're getting all of these big tent causes demos and actions where the big tent doesn't have anything to do with labor things like LOs and other other infrastructure like uh, COVID specific stuff like um, people turning up at demos to give out PPE and people turning up to demos to provide medical assistance or, you know, hydration assistance, things like that is, I think, a good thing. And also good in that they, again, they're not associated with like a client or parent organization, much less an electoral one. Um, you know, you, you've got You've got people in community signing up to be LOs. Uh, there are a bunch of students in Manchester who signed up to be LOs, not for necessarily just for actions, but to follow the police around specifically because of police violence and extortion against students related to COVID policing. I think it's really notable that a lot of this stuff has coalesced around COVID specifically because the bill um, that the Kill the Bill protest is trying to oppose would just be enshrining a lot of powers that the police currently already have, albeit, uh, you know, um, on paper temporarily um, because of COVID. Um, a lot of the protests being declared unlawful is currently being justified because of COVID. And the state obviously want to pass the bill in order to make the, the these things permanent. But the police are acting in a way where they are massively empowered and with far less oversight but before the state has actually queued up the justification for it. And so people are getting angry in the short window of opportunity they have before um, this change in, in, in dynamic with the state. So with these kind of big organizations, not organizations, big tent actions and all of these organizations joining up together, a lot of it is, I think, centered around causes related to policing and, uh, and you know, um, authoritarianism. Um, one thing that's really notable is also things like uh, disability activists who were disproportionately affected, again, by COVID um, and sex worker organisers. And notably, like, as organisations, uh, many of them do work at organising, which if you're a sex worker in the UK, you're organising under extremely hostile working conditions. And so you have all of these concerns about the state um, in terms of uh, trafficking and borders concerns being used to justify anti-sex worker legislation. And of course, that also relates to racial justice in terms of uh, Windrush. And um, people are all coming together with specific strategies and concerns, but united around very kind of radical lefty ideals. Uh, bringing it back to anti-trans reactionaries, you know, not only are anti-sex worker and anti-trans reactionaries ideologically and sometimes, you know, individually, literally the same. As Dick Alan Theodore says in the Stagnant Tide essay, you cannot tolerate trans women because your niche relies on drawing a big shining line between men and women and not allowing anything to blur it. You cannot tolerate sex work because it blurs the lines between income, economic class and social status. Um, I think this is also relevant to COVID uh, Again, because we saw the British response to the pandemic overwhelmingly tip in favour 
of much more mask off um, kleptocracy from like the British state and the working class um, disabled people and people who are, I guess, a Marxist might say like uh, considered surplus surplus population, uh, including like <clears throat> migrants who obviously the Brexit reactionary turn targeted are all sort of waking up and realizing that like the British state doesn't want you to live or, or have a good life. And I, I think all of this stuff is combining with some pretty interesting results. Yeah, the other thing it occurs to me is because this is kind of moving out of the realm in which uh, more official organizations can can kind of act effectively, it puts it more in the kind of realm where there are going to be trans people who are already engaged in political organization, which means it's more within striking distance for already politicized trans people, uh, which is arguably strategically favorable for the, for the LGBT movement, particularly particularly trans liberatory components of it to have influence over the current kind of direction of travel. So that I think is another like positive side of things. If you're, if you're very, if you're very much in kind of like the anti, the anti-transphobic wing is that it's going to be a large chunk of political activism is now moving in a specifically intersectional direction. And not only that, but a direction that means that, things will now be more under the influence of people who are really serious about intersectionalism in in a like a proper like praxis type of way instead of just lip service yeah uh, at the same time that the the um but again bringing it back to biden is trying to co-opt intersectionality with um the recently was it the s the cia did a, an advert um which like co-opted a bunch of lefty um kind of iconography and um uh slang um and made reference to um anti-racism and stuff like that like at the same time that like the electoral liberals are trying to co-op this kind of thing like again with reclaim the streets there are actually intersectional tendencies that are not doing box ticking exercises where the kind of nothing for us without us um is applying more heavily and so people having much more direct political participation at the same time as they're becoming disenfranchised from state politics in terms of like trans liberation specifically as well like to me at least and i assume to our listeners it's very clear that trans liberation will never come from any state or any of its subsidiaries and is like very and, and trans liberation is counter to the state project right like um in a recent platforming of anti-trans bigots uh the government i think had a had had like an anti-trans bigot in to talk about trans people, a classic, and they, in, in, in response to the GRA, yet again, um, it's always the bloody GRA, and if I remember correctly, one of the anti-trans people literally made reference to kind of gender enforcement in a legislative capacity being related to border enforcement, um, which is like an example of the right accidentally sort of getting a bit of an idea. Um, but like, yeah, trans liberation is, is almost like a, a bit of a bellwether for this sort of like anti-state um, intersectional politics. And so it's not that I think trans people are necessarily any more politically good or aware or anything like that. But um, organizations working in a way that is not hostile to and in fact, like is accessible to trans people, I think is a good thing, both as a leftist and as a trans person. Where are we? Question time. Oh, hypothesis. Increased aggression against infrastructure by mainstream feminists. 
Yeah, so, um, so uh, basically, as a result of all this, we've got a bit of a hypothesis. And we've got a few predictions that we're going to relate at the end of the episode. But this is this is our one in relation to uh, mainstreamification versus street movements, essentially. And that's that any kind of aggression against uh, like independent radical infrastructure by mainstream feminists, like the, the Jess Phillips type people, um, any kind of institutional feminist associated with, with transphobic projects uh, is like should be viewed as being a barometer for how much this stuff is actually becoming a threat. So the more, like, this is a bit, it's not necessarily the most, like, rigorous way of seeing it, but the more there are attempts to co-opt things, the more it will indicate that we have, like, a decent thing going across the board. And right now there's a a moderate attempt, there was a moderate attempt at at co-optation at the start of the Kill the Bill stuff. And it's kind of died down a little bit, but the fact that there was a decent stab at it indicates that they were pretty worried. Yeah, circling back to, I guess, like state-level attempts at co-option, um, like at the same time that the that the Tories extended charitable status to like an anti-trans extremist group, um, MI5 put out this ridiculous uh, thing about how it's welcoming trans people, which is obviously a lie, but again, is an attempt at co-option. Um, one thing I think that's really notable about these attempts at co-option as it relates to trans people is that the kind of red-brown kind of facets of the left, like the kind of like left reactionaries who always end up being like the Nick Mullins of transphobes, um, seem to be really pushing this conspiracy, again, they always try it, of LGBT people and most often uh, trans people as being like, liberal or inherently bourgeois or like a distraction from right this is the this the this is production you know what this is this is the stab in the back myth yes would you like to explain that for our listeners though okay right so i swear one of these days we will do uh, an episode on on anti-semitism but as we've mentioned before we're not we're not there yet um basically uh, the stab in the back myth is a classic anti-semitic trope from the period immediately after world war one um it's german in origin and it refers to this event that didn't happen basically which was the, the the idea was that the reason why the german army lost on the western front was that there was uh like a conspiracy by jews to like metaphorically and literally like both politically and militarily stab the german army the german imperial army in the back and collapse the Western Front. And this is why the defense of Germany failed. Um, obviously, it's bollocks. But basically, it's the notion of like there being a, a, an insidious insider threat, which is destroying the unity that we need um, with, with very, very little, very, very little inf- uh, evidence behind it. And it's like the, 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 one of the common iterations of this with relation to like trans people and reactionary online leftists is that there's this, there's this photo that keeps going around of uh, anti-homelessness concrete spikes that have been photoshopped into having like a rainbow flag color scheme. And people keep saying, oh, look at this. This is a, a classic neoliberal project to divide the, to divide the working class by, by making these, these anti-homeless traffic, like, traffic spikes appeal to lefties by making them all about gay stuff. Because of this, I've decided that um, any attempt to talk about gay liberation or trans rights or whatever must therefore be something that was boiled up in the headquarters of Goldman Sachs and is designed to uh, like push forward the ongoing murder of all of those flat cat workers down the coal mines. And uh, their poor whippets made into soup. Yes, 
Only, I think it's really only only trans people can reduce a whippet to a soup-like homogenate in twenty seconds. <laughs> I think it's really worth noting in terms of the um, the fo- for people who haven't seen it, the photoshopped and the homeless spikes are also misaccredited as being part of the US. They're not. They're a picture of a uh, bridge in China, um, which is like another interesting parallel to be drawn with the yellow peril. Um, kind of racist conspiracies that are floating around currently, specifically around China and specifically about US uh, Chinese relations. In terms of kind of uh, Goldman Sachs cooked up plots, it's really notable that like trans people started off making fun of attempts at state and neoliberal co uh, option of, you know, trans rights um ourselves and now like the reactionaries have seized upon this and they think it's real and obviously the attempts at co-option like you know biden biden's trans appointees and, and saying like we see you is co-option that mi5 thing is co-option of course there yeah, is pink, no conspiracy pink washing happens pink washing yeah pink washing happen. is real <laughs> we're but not saying just it's not because real. just the thing the thing about the pink washing is that like these guys have learned the opposite lesson from it like they've seen they've seen like the pink washing incident with the israeli jet right and they're yeah. like ah this must mean that pink paint is bad. <laughs> well, it's exactly. And I think it's interesting because it really shows uh, an, uh, basically an opportunity for political consciousness. These people have specifically chosen the wrong idea for whatever reason. And to me, the reason is that they are reactionary against LGBT people. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to misinterpret this stuff. It's like it's not highline gender theory. It's funny jokes on the Internet. Yeah, this is not this is not deeply complicated political theory. Like it's very very basic stuff. Yeah, it's funny jokes. Um, I think also in terms of to be of... fair, to be fair, it would be asking a lot of the producers of Chapo Trap House to understand the concept <laughs> of a funny joke. <laughs> very true. I've like seen some of their stuff. Is is it's not just you know morally grim. It's 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 not funny. I'm not that funny, but I could do. Oh, Jesus, I could do better than that. Um, in terms of our hypothesis about co-option, I think it's also interesting to note in terms of hostility, like what lines that hostility is coming uh, across. So, you know, we just talked about like pinkwashing and uh, reclaim the streets and the, the Jess Phillipses and things like that. But I think specifically paying attention to why they are grumpy about whatever it is they are grumpy about will be the most helpful. It's not. It's not just in terms of like, become the right's worst nightmare whatever they say is the worst caricature of the left it's good and cool if you are it specifically thinking about like what scares them most about whatever conspiracy they've cooked up um another point also i think worth pointing out in terms of the stab in the back thing it's really worth noting that a lot of anti-trans conspiracy theories are either literal anti-semitism or anti-Semitic tropes without admitting that they are anti-Semitic. So reskinned tropes with the word trans uh, swapped out for, for, for the Jews. And I think in, 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 in terms of looking at what upsets people the most, it's interesting to note that a lot of the anti-Semitic conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiracy theory convergence around trans stuff is class-based. Um, I think we've referenced the the American document about infiltrating the trans movement, which refers to the fact that like we're all skin and we organize decentrally is scary. I think this is more evidence that like that's good and we should keep doing it. Uh, basically, it reminds me also of um, certain elements of the U.S. left, uh, like kicking up a fuss about like the PMC, the professional managerial class. Absolutely, like the Jacobin reactionary ship. Right, the Jacobin reactionary ship because it's very much concerned again with their equivalent of like 
flat cap worker fetishization. Yeah, it's all about class as aesthetic as opposed to real class analysis. And I think trans people are like a perfect scapegoat for this because we love frippery. Um, and, you know, as the there's a text called The Faggot and Their Friends, which uh, if I haven't cited before, I recommend listeners read, which kind of specifically talks about this in terms of like the faggot and their friends being uh, antithetical to like the sort of vaguely stress rate, you know, militant so-called militant revolutionary um, in that we seem to propose a contradiction that like we do all this like weird degenerate stuff. So therefore we must be uh, bourgeois and decadent, except we're not because none of us have, you know, workplace rights uh, protections and we all live in like terrible housing and stuff like that. Um, So I think the class aspect of anti-trans reactionarism is really interesting to look at specifically in terms of the UK and the US, definitely, especially as M says, when it relates to concern trolling about the PMC, the the, the labour heartlands and everything like that. So our last bit of the episode on this general kind of like post-mortem waffling is we got some Q&A stuff and we have a variety of questions from listeners um, some of which we kind of answered on Twitter or other platforms, uh, but we'll, we'll answer them here as well. Um, would you like to kick us off? Yeah. So the first question we got um, was essentially someone asking, as a cis person, what they could potentially do to de-radicalize a very radicalized anti-trans bigot in their life. Um, so, you know, like a parent or a colleague. There's been loads of scholarship written about this specifically in relation to QAnon, even, you know, before the, the TNON convergence, which... Uh, I, I I will make way for. I'm not a de-radicalization expert. But in terms of practical advice, one of the main things that seems to be good generally, regardless of whether or not you are an expert yourself, is to improve the isolation leading to the radicalization spiral. In my own experience around uh, anti-trans people in my life, none of whom I would call, you know, a tough or were super radicalized, but several of whom did share anti-trans conspiracy theories. If you are a cis person, you would be able to do what I was unable, which is to handle it for the trans person in your life. If there is one who may be being affected by the radicalized anti-trans person, I had to do it for myself, of course, but my tactics were essentially um, gray walling the emotional stuff and also very much upholding boundaries. Um, Obviously, in terms of increasing isolation, this isn't ideal. What I more mean is that, for example, if you have an anti-trans colleague and you know that uh, your mutual trans friend doesn't want to deal with them, you can provide a buffer. As someone who doesn't experience transphobia, you can engage in some dialogue with this person and very calmly point out uh, things that you think will go well uh that, that are maybe wrong and also humanize the the trans person that this this bigot might know without the trans person having to advocate for their humanity themselves uh racist de-radicalization has used a similar method there there's a famous guy who made friends with a bunch of kkk members i think a preacher if i remember correctly but if you could do that without your trans friend having to do so directly that would be pretty good Hey, M here for probably one last interjection in this episode from the editing room. So while everything that E has mentioned is is pretty sound advice for the place that you could start from if you wanted to de-radicalize, say, a, a relative who's somehow embroiled in anti-trans politics, the reality is uh, de-radicalization as a, as a practice is extremely complicated. 
it often requires, if, depending on the extremity of the circumstances, it often requires some form of professional intervention. And we can't really cover it in the degree of detail that the subject really deserves in the format of this episode. So while the things that E has mentioned just now are pretty like worthwhile in their own right, the reality is that they are like building blocks that other things will then have to be put on top of later. Um, we may return to the subject of de-radicalization at a later date, and we hope that this, is, this information has been useful to you, but you should not be under the impression that this is the totality of what has to be done. And we certainly aren't in a position where we can give total advice. Uh, I should say that like this stuff will have a cutoff point after which things get a bit more serious. Um, not that that's not serious. Uh, it is, you know, it's, it's, it is important. It's worth doing. It's just that when um, transphobia within someone's life or like, you know, QAnon type belief systems become sufficiently ingrained. When they get glinnered. When they get glinnered, when they get to the point where they're isolated from their previous social contacts and they start forming new social contacts in whatever political movement they're in, that's when you are in, in within like proper cult territory. And once you're at that point, um, you're kind of reaching the, the stage where you need to start looking at like some kind of professional assistance, which we can't really advise you on. Um, basically like getting people out of cults is a whole different ball game. And there's a lot of debate as to like the most proper uh, and most caring ways to do it. And for some of you out there, that is the only kind of area where this is going to be operable because some transphobes are fully cult pilled and there's no way around that other than kind of recognizing that and dealing with it in the proper way. As I said, there's a lot of differing opinions on how that should be done. There's there's bad there's bad methods like deprogramming and there's good methods which are a bit more like um, psychiatric interventions uh, and that kind of thing, but with like a very different angle because it's often quite a lot about um, re-establishing uh, like broken relationships and that kind of thing in order that these people have a psychological route out of the place that they've got into. Yeah, I would say. If you are pre-glinopilling, um, your best route, or even after, your best route is to provide support to the other people in this person's life so that they do have a route out at some point without having, you know, hurt and isolated a lot of people, especially if there are trans people in this person's life, for example. Uh, next question is uh, one we got on Twitter, which is, are you going to do an episode about the history of TERFs? That's you know, proper TERFs, T-E-R-F, Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Um, and we are kind of of two minds about this because on the one hand an actual scholarly history of the trans exclusionary movement as presented by us would be a little bit of a redundancy because it's it's been covered better elsewhere but there's like another there's like other sides of it um which i guess you might be better 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 suited to, to speak on yeah i i am um... There are a bunch of articles which should provide a lot of historical context, which we will link uh, in our Twitter thread when we post this episode. Um, one of which is by Michelle of What the Trans podcast. Um, several from uh, contributors to uh, things like the Trans Safety Network. Um, but it's difficult because unless we... I mean, there's a lot of debate at the moment about the... The, the influence that radical feminism had on what we call you know turfs or like 
radicalized anti-trans bigots. Um, to me, I would not be interested in just a specific historical rundown if there is a context that we can provide in terms of sort of um, complexity theory or class analysis or, you know, things like that, maybe. But in terms of our episodes like Institutions and uh, uh, Girl Bows and the Grifters, I think we've hinted at some of this stuff. So it's probably not a specific episode priority because it's been covered sort of by us and very much so by other people. Um, If people have any further thoughts, let us know, though. Uh, let's see what else what else um kind of a similar a similar question is to what extent is the term turf still useful as various different forms of bigots begin to drift away from that route i guess we're kind of the same opinion here which is that i i think it's like it's useful as like a a conversational term to to quickly communicate the kind of politics that you're talking about it's slang yeah it's, it's useful as slang but yes in terms of diagnosing the specific ideology of the transphobic political movement, clearly the bulk of it is no longer that classic old guard turf. Um, it's now different forms of transphobe. Yeah, like when we started this podcast, which obviously has you know turf in the name, I kind of thought of it in terms of using turf as a way to delineate uh, an anti-trans bigot in terms of their radicalization. You know, like clinopilling or whatever. Um, not only is blood and glinopilling not so much of a good pun but also i still believe um that it is useful as slang because semantic bleaching with slang always happens and as we were talking earlier about co-option uh terms like these do change their meaning a lot and at some point in the future we might discard turf entirely i don't think we're really there yet specifically because it is only recently that many people have become aware of like the total uh discarding of the veneer of like feminism which anti-trans bigots were previously like using and like it previously wasn't as clear-cut and although that's now more clear i think the vast majority of you know kind of the people who we'd want more on side who aren't so much in the know are not going to be easily easy to communicate with if we suddenly switch to exclusively referring to these people as anti-trans bigots or gender reactionaries or anything like that I also separately personally disagree, at least in part, with some of the critiques, because I think some of them are based on people being, understandably, annoyed at like an appropriation of radical feminism. And I personally don't think that no true Scotsmaning any ideology or even strand of that ideology um, is really... uh, a good idea considering that like many many radical women who are absolutely committed to the fight against misogyny the patriarchy queer phobia etc have themselves criticized feminism and i think distancing criticism from feminism in order to make yourself feel better about feminism is uh an easy thing to do um but i I kind of think is not the right one. And I'm not the only one who kind of thinks this, like there have been loads of um, critiques of feminism and like, you know, womanism may be a niche term that listeners may not have heard of, but like that is a, a whole critique of feminism as a whole, which, which deals with these issues. Not to be confused with um, the kind of womanism that I believe Posey Parker announces. Oh yeah, so unfortunately Posey Parker's probably They did it again, they did it again lads They've taken it 
they can't just take feminism and take womanism too. Uh, when I refer to womanism, I'm speaking um, about a movement centered around black women's concerns, specifically because of issues um, that many that many black women have felt with the uh, racial politics of mainstream feminism for clarity. One other question we had uh, was like, basically, why is there such a thing as trans people who also fall under the tariff umbrella? And relatedly, I suppose you could also stretch that to be a question as like, why do true scam exist? Um, so this, we didn't feel we could answer in the scope of this episode, because it's a, a rather deep and complex topic within this general topic. Uh, so what we would like, if people feel comfortable with that, is for those of you out there who have at some point gone through a phase that would be categorized as transphobic in like in, a, in political terms, and you are yourselves trans, and you feel like comfortable perhaps explaining why that ideology was attractive to you now that you've kind of like ditched it, then we'd be very happy to hear from you. Um, you can contact us via email, which might be the best way to do this. Uh, but basically what we're looking for is because we didn't feel like we were in a position to answer, you know, the question of why do trans turfs exist or why does tra why does true scum exist as a thing? It'd be better to kind of get it from the point of view from the, from the point of view of people who've actually gone through that kind of political cycle themselves. I've spoken to several trans people who have in their past um, been taken up with internalized, you know, very uh uh intense internalized transphobia in various forms you know the kind of trans medicalist community or or what people call true scum and i completely understand um why on some level it is attractive to many people we'd still like to hear from from anyone who's comfortable sharing and we'd be very happy to correspond over text only and, and share things anonymously etc um we're not interested in in judging um but understanding obviously and um it might also shed some light uh it onto our earlier question about anti-trans de-radicalization so it'd be great to hear from people it, i think it'd be also interesting just from the point of view of kind of like the far be it for me to say given that i'm like the cis guy on the show but I, one thing i have noticed is that it's not i wouldn't say that it's like endemic but it is clearly quite common for people who are like transitioning to end up in like semi-toxic communitarian systems that in some situations could be described as cults and I, oh, absolutely. I, I found that quite interesting over the past like few years as I've kind of like been in and around uh, like leftist communities that are deeply connected with trans politics to see that particularly trans people or like margin people from marginalized identities seem to be very much vulnerable to that sort of thing and the, the spread of kind of like cult mentality. There is evidence of specific anti-trans groups um, love bombing or, you know, uh, trying to attract uh, trans people to their ranks, uh, which we have covered. But it is interesting that the kind of softer forms of, of uh, I guess you'd say trans turfery or whatever you want to call it, are actually still really present in trans communities. Um, and in fact, a lot of trans healthcare advocacy is focused on combating um, 
anti-trans attitudes towards transition that many trans people have, especially people who are earlier in their transition. And the, these movements go through a lot of um, cycles. Uh, there was a huge thing with uh, transphobic trans YouTubers back in the day, which I think ensnared a lot of people who were early transition at the time because YouTube was often used as a platform for people to chart their transitions. So people considering transition or early transition would watch these YouTubers share their updates from surgery or, or other transition-related care. And parasocial fact, parasocial relationships, I think, have been a really huge factor in this. So as well, if we did that episode, maybe bringing some of that stuff to light would also be useful in preventing future cycles from happening because it really does seem that early transition or nearly out or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, trans people are the most vulnerable to this kind of rhetoric. And also because of the cyclical nature of kind of trans cohorts where, you know, there's that joke that uh, every, you should never talk about being trans until at least six months after you've come out or everyone thinks that they're a trans elder uh, or trans time or whatever. Like we do have an issue with community knowledge and, and community resources. So contributing something like that might be helpful in terms of preventing uh, more issues. Because this of, reminds because me, this, this reminds me of like the, the freshman cult phenomenon that you get with universities where um, particularly people will, will like sign up for things, which, to an experienced eye are obviously like semi-cult-like organizations at like their freshers' fair or something. Because Oh, they, yeah, like the trot stand on campus. Right, the trot stand on campus is the classic British example, but you also get it with religious organizations. And it's oh, yeah. like, there's definitely something there about um, like bright young minds entering like a very new environment that is fundamentally going to change and alter their identity. And then having these organizations which have kind of evolved to be attractive to them and to recruit them into their ranks and many times are perhaps not the best place to be i mean it also masks a lot of the cult-like aspects uh by the fact that transition not for everyone but can lead to a great deal of isolation and can lead to making new social groups based on your new identity and also can lead to a radical change of your worldview none of which is necessarily bad i'm i'm speaking as you know like a far far left far left <laughs> you know a hardline tra but of course, this means that, that, that spotting the signs of things are more muddled and difficult, especially if the people who are pointing out to you that your new mates aren't necessarily the best for you, if they are anti-trans themselves, of course, you're going to disregard them. So yeah, uh, to, to wrap up the, the episode, given that this has kind of been a recap of what's happened over the last few months, we thought we'd just like stake out a couple of hypotheses and see where those take us over the next little while. Um, and my my first hypothesis is, is extremely conservative. It's not very imaginative, uh, and we basically kind of already laid it out. Basically, I think that uh, reactionary legislative efforts that are currently ongoing will mostly be successful. They won't universally be successful. Um, the key deciding factor on this will be like the strength of given local movements and the degree to which like allied support from liberals can be rallied. Um, therefore, it's inherently like a stopgap measure. It's not a permanent thing. Um, like I, what I mean is the, the the kind of stopping a given bill is a stopgap measure because of this like general failure of the legislative aspect of politics. The the paralysis that progressive legislators find themselves afflicted with will basically continue, and there will be no resurgence of full blooded centrism. Uh, that is all bread and butter stuff. Uh, the, therefore, the hypothesis that I'm building off of it is that 
this means that increasingly large organizational burdens will be placed on popular and street movements. And accordingly, there's going to be an increased political importance for those groups, increased trans involvement in the successful ones. Transentrism, baby, but good this time. Well, I'm not just I'm not just like <laughs> I'm not just advising this as a policy. This is what I know. I know. This is what I think will happen if current trends continue. Yeah. And what that means is like I make a joke about transentrism, but like if you are in an organization, like prepare for these increasing burdens and also safeguard um, against not just reactionary politics, as we advised in our last episode, but also the problems of organizations when placed under these burdens. So, you know, um, prioritizing interpersonal care is one thing. And also being aware of the structure of your organization and making sure that it doesn't turn into a cult, because sometimes that does happen, um, I think is going to be of, of massive importance because, as we've seen, many organizations have already failed at that hurdle uh, and have given into their you know, inherent contradictions. Uh, unrelated to trans stuff specifically, uh, in the US, the Black Hammer organization uh, recently uh, decided to start their kind of culty compound in Utah on 200 acres of land, which no one knows how to manage. This is specifically interesting because it's in direct contradiction to the land back movement in the US, which is related to um, indigenous politics and indigenous liberation, and also, you know, relates to private property and the state. And so you're already seeing some organizations buckling under those contradictions. And it would it would be good if uh, organizations that listeners are in trans friendly ones did not do the same. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't think anybody is anybody who is familiar with Black Hammer is particularly surprised that they ended up attempting to make a shit compound in the middle of the Utah Highlands. But yeah, sure. It's a, I think it's a good example of like really obvious contradictions, I suppose. Yes. In, in terms I, I, of a so-called leftist group. You're, you're absolutely right. It is a good example, but it is, it's just that it's so it's so out there that I don't think... So on the nose. I mean, Black, Black Hammer did not have the best reputation to begin with. <laughs> no, they accused Anne Frank of being a colonizer, if I remember correctly. Moving on to uh, another prediction for the future, uh, which is, you know, maybe not so much of the future. Uh Ex-gay and trans stuff is going to become so much bigger. You know, the Milo has already popped up. Um, the far-right guy the who lost his job in the GOP because he was filmed attending the Capitol riot, um, who uh, is part of the kind of Tianon convergence and uh, is also ex-trans, I think. You know, these people have already popped up, but... Um, the, the the debate on conversion therapy in both the US and the UK and, and other countries too is just going to throw even more fuel on the fire. Um, leftists have already pointed out how most normie fash commentators are already pivoting towards like evangelical propaganda posting. Um, part of the role of the ex-gay movement is to promote the very concept of conversion therapy, obviously, whilst giving it a respectable white male face which essentially secularizes a theologically based concept just enough to inject it into the political mainstream. So I guess my future prediction there is that evangelical concerns and theological concerns are going to ramp up even further, which will have very interesting effects for the US and the UK, because the UK is extremely secularized at the moment, despite the fact that we don't really have a separation of church and state, probably because our church and state relation was based on one of our monarchs wanting a divorce. Um, but in the U.S., uh, although the, the U.S. technically does have separation of church and straight state, there is already a huge evangelical specific and 
many other religious kind of tendency infrastructure. So I think evangelical stuff and evangelical agitation is just going to become massive in America. And so all of the problems that they already cause, I think, are going to get worse and also become more trans and homophobic. Uh, make of that what you will and if you can donate some time to your local family planning or you know trans healthcare clinic i i would recommend doing so the 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 last prediction we have is basically to do with um kind of stochastic violence and street violence in general so i think we mentioned this earlier in the episode but there's a this thing called the called the like gender offender thing and it's basically a mapping effort now, this, this is sort of borrowed from the anti-abortion movement where they would map out abortion clinics to pick it. This one essentially maps out trans people um, and it's essentially seems to be bringing... Or allied services. Or, or, or allied services, yeah, sorry. And it, the, the reason why it's important is that it seems to be a, a qualitative evolution in the capacity to do stochastic violence um, to the point where it's beginning to make a transition to, like becoming much more intentionally directed violence on a movement-wide level rather than stuff that just pops up. It's like, this is an implicit policy of the movement that we're now just doing this across the board in a leaderless fashion. And therefore, like, it provides this this space in which, like, Timmy concern trolling and, like, anti-reproductive evangelical activism will begin to directly feed into targeted assaults in a way that they you know they have already but this would be a much more coherent and politically like politically cohesive way of it happening um eventually the this these kinds of experimental attempts to get this stuff off the ground will find a way to to work and the fact that they're engaging in this kind of like qualitative mutation isn't a brilliant sign um yeah not good in the um, in the UK, a group called the Bendit Offenders have already anticipated this. I think this is not going to be an issue in the UK so much so quickly, although that's merely due to the fact that we just have a less militarized population than the US. Um, I think I think both countries are going to have to, well, both states um, are going to have to deal with this threat sooner or later. Yeah. So I guess the prediction we make here is that this is an indication of like ongoing. Uh, very proactive mutations, and as a result, there'll be somewhat of an arms race. Joy. I love arms races. Um, Also, uh, as a kind of symptom thing to keep a check on this arms race, this will, I think, be reliant on the increasing T-nonification, because that's like the primary like method for the more like hardened or uh, violence-capable far-right to converge with... um, the 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 general uh tra- average transphobe just to clarify tnonification is like the equivalent of like qanon like tnon is uh like transphobic anons essentially it's just a it's a it's a recent um evolution in in slang terms for the transphobic online reactionary fash type guys uh trans safety networks specifically cover um, this TNON convergence and far-right violent convergence in the article, several of which we have made reference to in this episode. So I really encourage people to check out uh, their site uh, and shout out to them for all of their absolutely wonderful work that we just blither on about. 
Uh, also, shout out to Health Liberation Now, who've done really good work covering particularly American evolutions of, of the, the transphobic culture war, and who also transcribed our most recent episode, the one about uh, all of the bullshit that's happening in the US. That was very good of them, and, and our thanks. Uh, we're hoping that we're going to get the rest of the transcripts. We do actually have transcripts for quite a few of our episodes now up on our Dreamwith page. Uh, it's just we haven't got around to it because we were waylaid with things. Um and I, I think that's everything for this episode. Uh, one last shout out. Um, on the more generally gender fascism side of things, we were made aware of a podcast um, called The Feminine Art of Radicalization, which recently put an episode called Girl Fascism Defined, which was a really interesting listen. And, you know, if, if, if you enjoy our podcast, I assume that you will enjoy this one as well. They cover similar but differing things in relation to gender and fascism. Um, we will come back to you in a couple of weeks' time, maybe. Uh, I don't <laughs> quite know. <laughs> yeah, no guarantees. Politics willing. Yeah, politics willing. I think we're going to take a little bit of a little bit of a break from marching up and down in the sun for for a while. We've we've done our bit for the time being. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll try and get back to you uh, a little bit sooner next time. Um, the next episode might be about our art and aesthetics, but it might be about something else. Uh, and we're, we're, we're not entirely sure which thing is going to get recorded first. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's it from us. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.